Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. It's been a lot of mine. I don't let it shine. It's been a lot of mine. I don't let it shine. It's been a lot of mine.
for us to do the work that you have called us to do and to not remove our hand from the plow. We ask you, Father, to help us to understand this work for today. Help us, Father, to not depart from you. We ask you, Father, that you be in control of this service. We ask for your mercy and for your grace and for your leading. May all be to your glory and your people be edified. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Greetings, everybody. Good to see you today. I'm thankful for every individual that has joined us today and will be joining us later today and tonight and throughout the week, many different people in different time zones. And I appreciate everybody that exhibits faithfulness in that. Today we're going to start in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I encourage you to turn with me in the pages of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 12. For the record, today's date is August the 26th, 2017 AD, in the year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In God's created calendar, it is the fifth day of the sixth month. Today's topic is entitled, Fear God, Respect His Prophets. Fear God, Respect His Prophets. Prophets. It feels like, and I know, I've already preached all of this multiple times. Nevertheless, it is necessary to repeat these things. And this is fresh in my mind, regardless of how many times I've taught these things and preached these very same scriptures, same points, same principles, but fresh in my mind, fresh in my heart, and fresh in the Spirit of God. Amen. In Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4. Hebrews 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, Paul is writing, well, maybe not Paul. There's a great big debate about who's writing the book of Hebrews. It doesn't really matter who's writing it, but whoever's writing the book of Hebrews is writing to tell people that, hey, you may have been trying to resist sin, but not yet 
to the point of shedding blood. And one thing that he was trying to say is Jesus resisted all sin to the point of shedding blood. Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are, the Bible says. Yet never sinned, even died from birth to death without sin. Not impossible. He always resisted the temptations, no matter how strong they came. Amen. No matter how strong the storm was and the temptation was, Jesus always resisted sin. Amen. But but the author of Hebrews says, you have not yet done this. Meaning that, that there's still room for improvement. Still room for improvement. You may have resisted some temptations, passed some of the tests, but there's more tests to come. And the future tests will be harder. Amen. The future tests, tribulations, and temptations will come stronger, harder, and more important. People do not understand this, especially the people that believe in the pre-tribulation rapture fairy tale. They do not have the reality of comprehension of how hard the test is still yet to come, and that it will become such a significant test even to the shedding of blood for many people, for many people. It will come to that extent. People read this verse and do not comprehend it, that it's written for us not just for the first century or second century A.D., but for us, that this time is still yet ahead. Amen. People think, I encountered this very, very, very recently. I encountered that people think that just because they have already been anointed, they have already been saved, already been born again, that is not possible for them to make a mistake. That is not possible for them to have made a mistake after having gotten saved and that just because I have told them that I believe that they are now saved, that it's impossible for them to be wrong. This is very sad that people have adopted this type of mentality. But this same person has not yet resisted against all temptations, all sin, or passed all tests, even to the point 
of the shedding of blood. And it says here in verse 5, and you have forgotten. People have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, quotation, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every every son, daughter, whom he receives. If you have been received, if you have been redeemed, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, guess what's going to happen even after you got saved? You're going to get scourged. You know what that means? Wit with a scourge to scourge in the literal sense is not just a normal back whip of only one blade of leather, but many blades of leather with possibly even metal sharpening or uh, something that makes it multiple in the scars and deeper and that it tears the skin. It is an extreme form of whipping. It is an extreme form of whipping. It is the ripping of your flesh off your body. It is more than just shedding blood. It is being mutilated. Yeah, it says that Jesus would do this to us. Spiritually speaking, Jesus will circumcise us. He will rip our flesh off our heart. But in a mannerism and of the purpose to correct us of sin. Because we are guilty, was guilty, and continue to be guilty as we continue to sin. We continue to be disciplined, whipped, scourged, circumcised repeatedly. Even as it was repeatedly with the the sacrificing of goats and lambs and animals, rams and bulls and all that in Old Testament times. Yes, I know that Jesus paid the price one time, one sacrifice forever. But even as people continually sinned in the Old Testament, they continually had to go back to the lidding of blood and the sacrificing of animals, Even the Bible says that when we fall away from Jesus and depart from him and come back to him, we sacrifice him again and put him to hope and shame. The Bible teaches this, even in this this same chapter of Hebrews. If you consider the entire book of Hebrews, this is the whole context of Hebrews. It talks about many different things in Hebrews. But a major theme in Hebrews is that you need to stay with God and do not fall away from God and do not walk out of the center of his will. 
and even as that you are in the center of his will, stand there and boldly and bravely accept his discipline, his punishment of you. Stand there and take it like a man. Amen. And what did Jesus do? When that came to him, not for the form of disbelieving him, but to save us from the second death, when it all came to him, the whips, the scourging, the spitting, the slapping, the mocking, what did he do? He did not rail back against them. He did not back talk. He kept his mouth shut. It says, the Bible says he was mute. He did not speak back. He took it as a man. And we have not done this. The church has not. We are now the body of Christ. We are now the body of Christ being scourged, being whipped, being mocked. But the reason that we are whipped and mocked is because that we are still being tested. We are still being tested and corrected and realigned to the center of his will. The great tribulation, even right now, even before the great tribulation, but especially when the tribulation comes, that our trials and our sufferings, when we are shipwrecked, when we are stoned, when we are whipped physically, literally, many different things that's going to happen to the church of God to the saints, to the true saints, to righteous saints, is because of our sins, of our false doctrines, of our unfaithfulness, our unbelief, our disobedience, to get us where we need to come. And when that discipline comes to you, will you mock God? Will you say to God, why, why are you doing this to me? What have I done to deserve this? And as I have said before repeatedly, that when people use those words, that they don't know what they have done to deserve this, it flabbergasts me when I hear somebody say something like that. Because when anything happens to me, I can always think of something of why I do deserve it. Always, always, I can always think of something of why I do deserve what I am getting. As far as flat tire, car problems, and this and that and this and that, but I cannot understand many things. But if it's from God, I understand. Amen. What I have done to deserve it. Let's continue here. And it says, verse 7, It is for discipline 
that you endure. And Matthew 24 says that those that endure into the end shall be saved. Yes, we were saved when we got born again. We were saved when we accepted, truly accepted Jesus and truly surrendered to him. We repented of Babylon, of false doctrine, came out of the world and surrendered to Jesus. We got saved. We got baptized. We got saved. But salvation is also a process. We receive the seed of salvation and we're saved because we have been conceived and because we have been born, again, from above of the Spirit. But our salvation is not full until we are turned to Spirit. Amen. And until then, do not think, do not think that it is impossible for you to sin. Do not think that it's impossible for you to do wrong. Do not think that it is impossible for you to fall away from God. It's not impossible. That's a doctrine of once saved, always saved. Doctrine of Babylon. Doctrine of the no-Babatism church, which used to be called the Babatist church, and they still call it that, but it's not the Baptist church anymore. Now it's the no baptism church. Once saved, always saved is the doctrine of the no baptism church. That you can't fall away from God. It's impossible for you to fall away from God. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. You must endure unto the end. Why are we repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly told in the Bible that we've got to endure until the end? Endure what? Endure the chastisement of the Lord, the trials, the tests, the temptations, and all the trials that come from God, our family, and from the devil and from the world. All these things in every direction coming against us in every direction that we must endure all this spiritual warfare. And he that is still standing, still faithful to Jesus in the end, blessed is that person. But do not think that you cannot do any wrong just because that you have been saved. <clears throat> but it says here, that in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We are all disciplined. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers repeatedly, is telling us repeatedly in verse 6 and in verse 7 and in verse 8. It is repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly telling us you're going to be disciplined. You are. Because you've not yet resisted against all sin unto the lid and the blood. 
you're going to make mistakes. And you're going to be corrected and you're going to be disciplined. Of which we have all come to be partakers. Then, if you have not received this discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. We respected them. Now, when we were children, when we were immature, we may have backtalked and said, Mom, I hate you. Dad, I hate you. Or did not understand why they were disciplining us. But once we grow up and once we become mature, then we start to understand. And we start to respect them more and understanding the facts of life more now that we see things differently. As we get older and older and older, we, we see things more and more differently. All of us, we all continue to mature, even into our 70s and 80s and 90s. We continue to mature, learn our lessons, understand things better. Amen. And we respect our parents now. But do we treat God the same way that when he disciplines us that we say, I hate you? I hate you, Dad? I hate your Father? Let it not be. Let it not even be in the flesh because we should honor our parents. No such words should ever come out of a child's mouth. Amen. Fleshly or spiritually, no such words should come out of our mouth. But not just out of our mouth, but even in our heart, we should understand. Now this applies a little bit more spiritually, more to our Heavenly Father, that when He disciplines us, we should embrace it and realize God is fair and God is just and God is not an abusive parent. God is not an abusive parent. Amen. And God is not a liar. Amen. When he disciplines us, it's because we truly deserve it, and we are truly guilty. God is not a, a false accuser. If we are disciplined, we are guilty. So do not say, I do not know what I have done, or that it's impossible that now that I'm anointed that I have made a mistake. Do not be so proudful or ignorant or high-minded, but humble yourself and ask yourself and your father as well, what have I done? Don't say I've not done anything. Don't say I don't know what I have done, but rather ask him, what have I done? He wants us to know. He wants us to know. And a good father does 
tell the child why they are being disciplined. He does not want us to continue to be ignorant about our sins. He wants us to know, understand, realize what we have done wrong and how not to repeat the mistake. Amen. But should we back talk to our spiritual fathers or physical fathers when we are still yet children? But people think that because they have been saved one year, that they are fully mature and impossible that they could make a mistake. And now they're all grown and no longer need their spiritual fathers or discipline or chastisement or godly correction. Because guess what? Their attitude is, hey, God may speak to you, pastors. God may speak to you, prophet. But God speaks to me as well, and I'm my own man, and I'm grown up, and I don't need you anymore. Bye-bye, pastor. This is the attitude of ungrateful children. And children whose pants are too big for them. Amen. And it says here, in verse 9, Hebrews 12, verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of souls, that's meaning the father of our soul, and live. That word subject means to submit yourself, to make yourself subject to, to be passive to the aggressor, to be passive to the father, our parent. Amen. We are subject, we are submitted, we are surrendered to our heavenly father. Shall we not much rather be subject, submitted, surrendered to the Father of our soul and live rather than die? Amen. Notice that word, live. Why does it say live? Think about that. Underline it. Because the fact is, if you do not honor and submit yourself, and surrender to our Heavenly Father, you will not live. Amen. You will not live. Even in the commandments, talking about physical fathers, that honor your parents that your days of your life may be long. How much more true it is in the spiritual realm of your spiritual father, to honor your spiritual father and your spiritual fathers, your spiritual leaders. Honor Moses. Honor Paul. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the cloud of witnesses. Elijah, Elisha. Honor your forefathers. Respect them. 
and that your days may be long. Amen. And live. Verse 10. Let us think, before we read verse 10, that if they did not honor Moses, they didn't live, did they? Absolutely not. And verse 10, our fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time, our physical fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, as seemed best to them. Our physical fathers has a duty, has a responsibility to their children, to the wives, to the family, to the congregation, to society, to the village. Our physical fathers have high responsibility, high duties. The physical father in each family household is a symbolism and a place marker of the church. For the church and the family are symbolisms of one another. And the local father, the physical father of each family is the pastor of each individual family. But that dad of each individual family, even though he is a pastor of his wife and of his children, of his family, he is still underneath the congregational father, the congregational dad. And people say, you should not call your pastors fathers. And that's true as far as that we should not call them Father Smith, Father Carpenter, Father whatever. They, we should not call them Father. But the truth is they are our spiritual fathers, and the Bible even tells us this. And we should not neglect that or ignore that. So the local pastor, I mean the local man, the, the husband, the dad of an individual family, he is the pastor of that group of his family, but he is still underneath somebody else. He is still underneath the local congregational pastor who then is underneath a evangelist who is then underneath the prophet who is then underneath the apostle. People are never told this. And once they're told it, they forget it because they're not accustomed to this because you don't see it in the local church. But it's the way in the Bible that God instructed the church to be. That the Bible tells us through Paul and Corinthians and Ephesians, both, that he has called these administrations of offices for the church that he has called some as apostles and some as prophets. And even in another place, first as apostles and then as prophets, then as evangelists, as pastors and teachers. There are ranks, just as in the military, just as in government, just as in business, just as in family, just as in church. There are ranks. And people don't understand that. Everybody wants to be a brother and nothing more than a brother. They want to think as me as nothing more than a friend and as a brother. And they want to think as their local pastor, as nothing more than a friend and as a brother. 
And I've seen him even here in person in the past in this very building, how that mind frame and how that thinking totally destroys a congregation. Yes, I am your brother. But I am also your pastor. And there is also a such a thing as apostle and as a prophet. And the church must remember that as much as you want everybody be on, to be on the same level and as much as no man should exalt himself higher than he should and as much as every person, even the apostle, should humble himself, nevertheless, God did appoint ranks in the church, in government, in business, in society, and in in his kingdom. Amen. And the Bible says that Moses was humble. He wrote the books of the Bible. Moses was called as a prophet, as an apostle, as a pastor, as a teacher, as all these things. Moses had all five ranks. And the five ranks of the office of the administrations of the church did not begin with Paul, even as Israel was a foreshadowing of the church, regardless of false doctrine being taught. Let's continue here in these verses. It says here that, verse 10, for they disciplined us, our our physical fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Now, if the physical father, physical dad, is making decisions as what seemed best to them, to the best of their accountability, to the best of their knowledge, to the best of their wisdom, to the best of their responsibilities. Do not second-guess such things. The people would look at a local pastor and say, you're nothing more than my friend and my brother. How dare you think that you have a greater amount of authority That's the way people think. And how dare you make the decision and the final decision? It's the same spirit of rebellion of a woman, not all women, I'm just using this example, biblical example, that some women in this modern-day Western feminist movement, that some women will say to their husband, how dare you think that you have a higher rank than I do or any more authority than I do, and you make the final decision. How dare you? That is the mentality of Satan, the mentality of the feminist movement, and it is totally out of control, out of control, out of line of the God structure of family and church and society and government. 
and kingdom. It is the wrong attitude. It is the attitude of pride where they are trying to exalt themselves and not following the order, the God-ordained order. So our physical fathers and our spiritual fathers and our pastors and apostles, they are doing what seems best to them as being taught and trained by God. And we should respect that and not back talk. Seem best to them. So, but it says, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness so that we will learn righteousness Stop repeating our mistakes. We have to be disciplined. We have to be chastised. Verse 11, all discipline, for the moment seems to not be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, to those who have been trained by discipline and chastisement, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not pleasant to be corrected by your pastor. It's not pleasant to be corrected by your heavenly father. It's not pleasant to be corrected by anyone. But we must endure it, understanding that our spiritual father is just and wise and that he is moving and working through his prophets, through his apostles, through his pastors, through the ranks to the local church and the local individual. So instead of being rebellious to the government of God, we should submit ourselves to the government of God, even as the Bible says that we are even to submit ourselves even to wicked kings, the Bible says. How much more should we submit ourselves? I'm not trying to be over-authoritative. I'm not trying to run a cult. But the Bible teaches everything that I am saying here. And I'm trying to teach the Word of God. I do not seek robots. And the most offensive thing that people can say to me that I've heard two times in just two or three months is, Pastor Tim, when you command something and you say jump, How should I say how high? You know how offensive and how insulting that is? You might as well just come here in person and just punch my lights out because that would not be any less offensive than saying that to me. That if I say jump, that you should that you should say how high in the end God will be my judge even as you are now amen Let's go to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs 9. 
Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Proverbs 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. Think about in recent sermons and in sermons for years now, how we repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly read those verses in the New Testament that talks about the church being built as a house, a spiritual house. And it says here that she has hewn out her seven pillars, meaning columns, support beams, in this spiritual house. Remember how just last last week, the last sermon last week, how we are going, if we overcome and if we endure into the end, and if we are still saved when we get into the kingdom, how we will become a pillow, a pillar, a column, in the spiritual house with a new name. So here the number of completeness of a complete house, of a well-built house. Wisdom has built her house. Wisdom has built the church. Amen. And she has healed out for her seven pillows, a complete house with a firm foundation. Verse 2, she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set out her table. Glorious. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Verse 3, she has sent out her maidens, her virgins. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. And whoever is that naive, Brittany, that's a naive, naive, yeah, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come and eat my food. So it's inviting people to come and get saved. Book of Revelation, the bride says come, and the bridegroom says come, and the bride says come. Buy you milk without money. So it says come, eat my food, and drink of the wine is an invitation to the marriage supper, an invitation to be part of the house of God, invitation to become a pillow, a column in the house of God. Verse 6, forsake your folly, and what? Lives. <laughs> Woo! Glorious. How the word of God, how each joint of the Bible, how each word fits perfectly together. Live and not die. Not be cast into the lake of fire. You have to become a solid theme in the house of God so that you will not be cast off and welter and die and cast into the fire. Forsake your folly, your foolishness, your rebellion, your pride, your stubbornness, your, your resisting the correction from God. Stop that folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Verse 7, Proverbs 9, verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults 
for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or a mocker, or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Two different groups of people here. And it's in the context of how you get to the kingdom. Because in verse 1 to verse 6, spiritually speaking, about coming to the marriage supper, coming into the spiritual house of God, becoming a pillow in the kingdom of God. How do you get there? Starting in verse 7, when you are corrected, when you are chastised, when you are disciplined by God through his prophets, through his apostles, or even through your brothers and sisters, that you humble yourself and listen to wisdom. Listen to your forefathers who have lived longer than you. Listen to the old man. Bend your knee. Bow to the floor, as I did many, many, many times listening to my grandmother and other older people and elders, even as I did sit in the benches of churches for years and kept my mouth shut, sit, listen, and learn. For a long time, for a long time, for a long time, even after I became a pastor, going to churches, and submitting myself, submitting myself and listening, bending the ear and learning and observing and keeping my mouth shut as much as I could, respecting my elders. But in verse 7 and in verse 8, two groups of people, one group of people is when they are corrected, they mock back, they back talk, they scoff. And they turn and, 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 and rant and, and tear against, back against the person who is sent to correct them. But reprove a wise man and he will love you. Reprove a wise man and he will listen to you and he will humble himself. He will hear you out and he will examine himself. Amen. Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still yet wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Jesus, is the beginning, the beginning of wisdom. Have you ever heard anybody I never have in my whole life ever heard anybody say I fear Jesus maybe you've heard it I've never heard of it I can think of I've heard people say I fear God and I've heard people say you should fear God and that they do fear God but I've never heard anybody say that they fear Jesus or that you should fear Jesus because they, most people think that there's two gods or three gods. They think well, the God of the Old Testament was the God of fear, the God of anger, the God of judgment, the God of wrath. But this God of the New Testament is a papacist, 
who does not believe in war, does not believe in rebuke, does not believe in offense, does not believe in disfellowship, does not believe in roughing the feathers. That is the mentality of people. That they think this God in the New Testament or this prophet or this man in the New Testament is is in comparison to the God of the Old Testament and completely different. But the fact is, they're one and the same. Amen. One and the same. People need to understand that Jesus, when he's coming back, he's coming back in great wrath. He's not coming back in peace. He's not coming back with a smile on his face. Jesus is coming back in wrath to judge and discipline people. Amen. And what will he say even to preachers? He will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. These are people that believe in him, know his name, believe in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons. They heal the sick. They do great and mighty miracles. They have YouTube videos. But they do not obey God. They do not serve God. They smile. And they, they win thousands of followers because they don't rebuke people. And they don't disfellowship from people. They don't cast you out. They don't speak out against things. Uh, I just looked on James Owens on his YouTube page and on his Facebook page and saw how he allows all these people to come on there with paganism and witchcraft and Satanism onto his pages, and he doesn't say a word to them, doesn't correct them, doesn't chastise them, doesn't discipline them, doesn't delete them, doesn't delete their satanic comments, doesn't correct them, doesn't do anything. And that's how he's getting thousands of followers. And yet it was said to me that he loves people because he doesn't treat people the same way I treat people. That he, that he cries as if I don't cry. That he loves as if I don't love. That he has patience as if I don't have patience. To see, people think that love means that you don't offend, you don't disfellowship, but that you're always patient and long-suffering with every person, every situation, with every sin, with everything, always, always, always forbearing people. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks about this fellowship. The Bible talks about exposing sin and rebuking false doctrine and rebuking the wolves, exposing the wolves for what they are, and not having fellowship with those workers of darkness. But people want to pick and choose the Bible verses they want to believe. And even after they learn more of the Bible and even come into the chat room and even declare that you must keep his commandments if you love him. And if you do not keep his commandments, you do not love him. That's what the Bible says. And yet, they will not apply it to the preachers of Babylon. 
because the preachers of Babylon will shake your hand, will smile at you, will not offend you, will not rebuke you, will not disfellowship from you because of that ideal of the worldly type of love, which is not love but hate, because they don't love you enough to discipline you. They don't love you enough to correct you and set you straight. It's not love. That is hate. It is death and destruction. Amen. Look at verse 10 here. The fear of Jesus is the beginning of wisdom. If you want wisdom, you must fear Jesus. For it is the beginning. It's the beginning. It is the beginning. It's just a start. Just the start. People have no fear of God. They have no fear of Jesus. How can you say you fear God if you will rebuke his true prophets and yet refuse to rebuke the prophets of Babylon? Ridiculous. Amen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think about when I did bend the knee, humble myself and listen to my grandmother when I was a child and even as an adult, as a man in his 20s, as a man in his 30s, on the floor, submitting myself to my own grandmother in respect and in honor to my elders even in the flesh. How that I feared my grandmother with healthy and great magnitude of fear and respect. Because my grandmother was not a woman to be reckoned with. Or she was a woman to be reckoned with, however you want to say that. Because as loving as she was, and she always treated everybody that came into her house. Every, every, I never, ever in my life ever seen my grandmother disrespect, dishonor, or treat anybody wrong. In my whole life. She lived to be, I think, 93, 94, 96, something like that. In my whole life, I never, ever, ever, ever saw my grandmother treat anybody wrong. But I did see her treat people in a, a manner that was necessary. And people honored her. The whole town honored her, respected her. I don't lift her up as God. Do not misunderstand me. But she was a woman of God. Amen. And people throughout the family and throughout the town and throughout the community of all ages feared my grandmother. But she was also considered a woman of God. Amen. And when I think outside my family, I think of one of my elders, one of my other elders that passed away, Mr. Cox, even though he did not understand all truth, 
even though he passed away before some of the major revelations that God gave me later in more recent years, he was still a man of honor when he was alive, listened to me. He bent the ear, even though he was much, much older than I was, yet he bent his ear to me. Amen. He invited me over to his camp or his RV where he was living. Invited me over for supper, fed me, and bent his ear to me and honored me and respected me, even though I was much younger than he was. Because he knew that you're never too old to learn. He wanted to learn. He wanted to grow. He wanted deeper understanding. And he craved the word of God. And he would ask me to come over to read him the Bible, to teach him the Bible, to explain to him the Bible, to tell him the truth. I've never seen anybody in my whole life who had the same attitude that he did. No one else in my whole life to the same degree that he had. But he could have said, he could have said, I am older. He could have said, I'm wiser. He could have said, I'm already saved. I don't need you. But he knew how to humble himself and how to seek out deeper truth and greater things. Amen. No one's ever too old to learn. And no one is ever too perfect to be distant. Amen. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. Amen. Praise God. Now let's go to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers over here. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Numbers. So it's fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12, starting in verse 1. But when I used to go over to minister to Mr. Cox, even though he bent the knee to me, I was bending the knee right back to him. Because even though I was his spiritual father and his elder in the spirit, he was still my physical altar, much older than I was, and I still had great honor, great respect for him because he was a veteran, because he was a man of confession, because he was a man of humility, how he would humble himself, and how he respected me, and treated me as a spiritual altar. I treated him like that. We had mutual respect. Amen. And I bent the knee right back him. Amen. In Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam, which is Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, his brother and his sister, spoke against Moses because of the Kushnite woman whom he had married, which was his his second wife, and as far as we know, he's still married to his first wife as well, but he had married this Christianite woman, and they said to him, and they said, 
Has the Lord, has Jesus indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? So what was going on here is that his brother and sister had this attitude that Moses was just their brother. He's just a man. Moses even, my wife Brittany even revealed something to me right there that he was, Moses was the baby. Yeah, that's true because Mary and Aaron, they were already there, weren't they? When Moses was put into the little ark into the water. Amen. So Moses was the baby boy, the baby brother. Amen. I never thought about that before, but that's true. Amen. Amen. So here, they're like, you know, this ain't no man of God. This ain't no prophet. This is our baby brother who Yeah, God speaks to him. He speaks to us too. Same attitude people have today. Yeah, Pastor Tim, you're my brother. Yeah, God speaks to you. But God speaks to us too. Amen. Oh, good. I'm glad. The Bible says that Moses said, Moses said that he wished that all the people were prophets. Amen. Moses wasn't trying to be the only prophet. Moses did not apply for the job. Where does it say that Moses sought out to try to be the leader? No worse. God called him. God chose to work through Moses. He also chose to work through Miriam, his sister. He also chose to work through Aaron, his brother. But God chose Moses to be the leader. That was not Moses' decision. He didn't apply for the job. But it was the calling of God, the administration in the office, and the appointing of what God decided to do. The people like to question God on his decisions and his appointments. And that's what they were doing. They weren't just questioning Moses and trying to exalt themselves. They were questioning God, if you really think about it. And they were trying to exalt themselves and cast down Moses' leadership. Verse 3 now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That's pretty amazing. Moses was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. Yet, his brother and his sister had an attitude as if Moses was exalting himself. That was their attitude, absolutely. That was their attitude, was that Moses was over-controlling, over-authoritative. Who are you to say that you're the only one hearing from God? And I am sure that if the expression of how high should I jump 
was known back then during the time of the book of Numbers. I'm sure Moses heard it. Moses, if you say jump, should we say how high? If that expression was around back then, I guarantee you Moses heard it multiple times, just like I've heard it multiple times over the years and increasing. Very insulting, very rude, very uncalled for. What was the response of God when this happened here? Because that's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. And in verse 4, Solomon, the Lord Jesus said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting, to the church. So the three of them came out. Then Jesus came down in a pillow of a cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. Can you imagine that? He comes out of the sky. Jesus did. He stood in the doorway of the church, of the tent, and he called over Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, in their ears and the hearing out loud, said to them, hear now my words. These are the words of Jesus. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Jesus, is what it originally said, I, Jesus, shall make myself known to you, to him, in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful. We've been talking about faithfulness and unfaithfulness. He is faithful in all of my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in hidden sands, not in dreams, not in visions, but face to face, ear to ear, mouth to mouth. God is my friend. Moses is my friend. And he beholds the form of Jesus. Moses saw God. Why then, Marian, Aaron, why then were you not afraid? Why were you not afraid? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but people do not understand that if you fear God, you should also fear Moses. You should also fear his prophets, even your local pastor. A reverent fear, even as I had for my grandmother. A reverent fear. It is not a wrongful fear. It is not a wicked fear. It is not a demonic fear. It is not an over-controlling fear. It is not an over-authoritative fear. It is not a fear of cult, of cultness. But it is a healthy, godly, righteous, and loving honor and fear and respect. Amen. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Verse 9, So the anger of Jesus burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, sir, 
is what Aaron was saying to Moses. Now here, Aaron, who had been speaking against Moses because Moses was only the baby brother, if God spoke to him, he spoke to him as well. They're trying to think of him as equals or even less than equal. And here, calls him sir. All of a sudden, Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, meaning sir, I beg you, I submit myself to you now. Do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly. Aaron knew that Moses had the authority to remit or retain sin. Moses was not a Catholic priest, but he was a priest of God, and Aaron was a priest of God, even a high priest of God. The Aaron was under Moses. Aaron, you are a priest of God. Aaron, you are high priest of God. The Aaron needed to understand. Yeah, he may have been high priest, but he was still under Moses. And Moses had the authority to admit and retain sin, even as it says that we are to do in the New Testament. Do not account this sin to us. Do not retain this sin on heaven and earth. Do not retain this sin in which we have acted foolishly. We need to add this to that uh, article. So, AJ, if you could please, Pastor AJ, send me an email after you listen to this that we need to add Numbers chapter 12, verse 11, Numbers 12, verse 11, add to the article, Remit and Retain Sin. That way I don't have to stop and make this note now. Thank you very much. In verse 12 it says, Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Verse 13, Moses cried out to Jesus, saying, Oh God, Heal her, I pray. But Jesus said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? In other words, if her physical father had disciplined her, if her physical father had done something to scourge Marion. If Marion's physical father had done something to scourge her, to whip her, to discipline her, to chastise her, to correct her, would she not have continued to suffer for the minimum mandatory sentence of seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp and afterward she may be received again. So God gave Miriam the mandatory sentence of seven days of being cast out, of being shunned, of being disfellowshipped for a week. That's what happened. Amen. God told people to, to take people out of the camp that was disfellowshipped. 
God loved Marion. God called Marion. God gave Marion responsibilities, duties, and a high calm. She was a woman of God. But that didn't mean that it was impossible for her to make a mistake. It didn't mean it was impossible for her to sin. It didn't mean that she didn't have to submit herself to the administration of the congregation or to God. Amen. So Marian was shut up outside the camp, this fellowship, for seven days, and the people did not move on until Marian was received again. She held the whole church back. She held the whole congregation back. They couldn't move. They couldn't go to the next step in the wilderness. They had to sit still. People don't understand that when they disobey God and step outside the camp and get this fellowship, that they don't just hinder themselves, they hinder the whole church. That is so true. But people don't understand that. Now remember that Moses and Aaron, they were foreshadowing to the end time two witnesses. Remember, remember that new article recently that Jesus had me to write about the two witnesses and how Moses and Aaron was a foreshadowing, two men, two prophets of God, standing before Pharaoh, bringing the plagues upon the earth, upon Egypt, the fire and the blood, the hail and the brimstone, just like it will be with the two witnesses in the book of Revelation in our day and in our time soon. Think about the two witnesses. Would you speak in an unrespectful manner to the two witnesses? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm getting ready to pass my baton to the two witnesses. I know how to submit myself. And everything that this ministry right here has done with the Alpha and Omega Bible translation, all the articles on the website, congregations and people worldwide, all of this is going to be turned over I will surrender all this to the two witnesses. And if I have preached any doctrine wrong, I will submit it to the two witnesses. I will submit it to God through his prophets, through the two witnesses, and I will submit myself to them. But I will not submit myself to Babylon. I've been there and I've sit on the back the back seat of Babylon and in the middle seat of Babylon I have sat there and I have humbled myself to them but no more to them. Because now now I'm old enough to understand that I don't belong in Babylon. But I do know how to submit myself. And I will submit myself to the two witnesses, and I will not speak against the two witnesses. And if I disagree with the two witnesses, I will hold my tongue. If I uh, teach one thing and they teach something else, I will correct myself. 
instead of writing the two witnesses or calling the two witnesses or texting the two witnesses and saying, you're wrong, because how dare I? How dare I? Because they are my elders, and I don't even know how old they are, whether they're older or younger than me. Even if they're 20, 30 years younger than me, I will submit myself to them in every form, in every way. If they want my tithes, I will send my tithes. If they want my building, they can have my building. If they want my car, they can have my car. If they want me to drive to North Dakota, to Alaska, to Peru, to Brazil, whatever they say, if they say jump, I will say how high. I will obey them. I will submit to them. I will obey the two witnesses. They are my spiritual fathers. If they say jump, I will say how high, sir. Amen. God is my witness. I lie not. Let's go to Matthew 23. But when I say how high, it won't be with the wrong attitude. It won't be in the same attitude that people are addressing me. It will be in the attitude of, yes, sir, whatever you say. Is it possible that the two witnesses could be wrong about something? Yes, it's possible. People don't understand that. Yes, the two witnesses will see God, hear God, even as Moses saw God and heard God. Even as I have seen God and heard God. In different ways. Not in the same magnitude as Moses did, or as the two witnesses will. But I've still seen the chair move. I've still seen the clouds change shape. I've seen God in different ways. I've seen his hands, his works upon humanity, upon me, upon this world. But just because the two witnesses will have a greater and higher office, even a greater and higher calling, a greater and higher anointing than I will, does not mean that they are perfect does not mean that they would be perfect in every way. They are not Jesus. Hello? But even if they say something wrong, I will not correct them. Even if they say something wrong, even if I disagree with, I will not correct them. This is on record. This is on record in heaven. It's being written down right now. I could be cursing myself or blessing myself right now. But it's on record that even if I disagree with the coming two witnesses, that I will not correct them, condemn them, reprove them, rebuke them, or say anything against them in any way, shape, or form. I will be 100% submissive to them, except that I will be gone. So I won't be able to submit myself to them very much. 
about what much I can, I will. Because I know how to submit myself. Matthew 23, verse 1. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Jesus is telling the people, obey these leaders. Obey the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group that Jesus spoke against over and over and over, very harshly, very boldly, straight out, called them hypocrites, called them snakes, poisonous snakes, vipers, everything. He spoke against them very harshly, but he's telling the people, obey them. These are your leaders. They are in the seat of Moses. Even as you obeyed Moses, you are to obey the Pharisees. In that day and in that time, that was the instruction of Jesus to obey those people. Even though they were hypocrites, Jesus told the people to obey them. They were the leaders. They were in the seat of Moses. But it says here, but, but do not do according to their deeds, according to their actions. So in other words, obey them, but don't be a hypocrite like they are. So they may be wrong about something, but you're still to obey them. And you're, but do not do the same sins that they do. You're still responsible to God. You're still responsible to God. You still do not actually commit a sin. Do not be as they do, as being a hypocrite. For they say things that do not do them. Do not be a hypocrite. Verse, uh, then go to verse 27. Let's jump over to verse 27. Woe to you. Now as he's talking to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. People get on me. People say you're being too harsh. People say I'm being unloving. Because evidently they've never read the Bible. And they don't know that Jesus spoke harshly, called people names, called people hypocrites. People don't know the Bible. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, clean, beautiful. But inside, they are full of dead men's bones, these tombs, and all uncleanness. So the Pharisees had a righteous appearance outwardly, but in their heart, in their mind, inside, in their soul, they were not clean. Verse 28, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and breaking the law, lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous. You build these shrines, 
and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves. And you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of your family of poisonous snakes. Brood of vipers means family of poisonous snakes. How will you escape the sentence of see what the Greek word is here real quick here in verse thirty three, Jehina. He didn't say the word hail. He said the word Jehina, which means the valley of Hinnom, which was symbolic of the future lake of fire. He wasn't talking about a place underground. He was talking about the future lake of fire. So he's speaking very harshly, very bold, very offensive to these hypocrite religious leaders. Amen. So he told people, obey them. Why? Because they needed administration. The people needed leaders. And the Pharisees were the leaders of the day until the disciples. Until uh, the disciples received the Holy Ghost. Until they were anointed from above on high in John 20, 14, John 14 through the rest of John and into the book of Acts. And then, once the new covenant and the new uh, church was fully established, their office went away. The Pharisees, the office of the Pharisees no longer existed. And the Levitical priesthood no longer existed once Jesus died and rose again. So we no longer have to obey the Pharisees. We no longer have to obey the Jews in Israel. We no longer have to obey what they call the rabbis, which we do not call the so-called rabbis. But in the day of Jesus, until he died, yes, they were required to obey them because they were in the office of Moses. But who's in the office of Moses now? Pastor A.J. is. I am. God is my witness. I'm not trying to exalt myself. People that know me well, they know my purpose, my heart, my intent. But constantly, constantly, I have to fight back against these false accusations that I'm exalting myself, that I'm being overcontrolled, that I'm being overauthoritative, that I'm not being loving, that I'm being cold. And people will tell me, as I've heard many times, Pastor Tim, you don't have to say nothing. You don't have to fight back. You don't have to explain none of this. But I do. I do. Because it, I never cease from being amazed how people will come into the fold, come into the flock, and I'm completely trusting and believing that these people are saved, that these people are faithful, that they're going to stand with God to the end, that they're not going to backslide. Yeah, I understand they're going to make mistakes. 
and I understand that I've got to be patient. I got I understand that I've got to pray for them, see it through, answer their questions, answer their doubtings, be patient with them, be long bearing, be long suffering. But they still, even when I am patient, even when I am long suffering, they still, as soon as I address their sin, as soon as I address their sin, here comes the knives. Here comes the knives. Here comes the face punch. Here comes the insults. Here comes the disrespect. And it never ceases to amaze me how my own brother, how my own sister, how Aaron, how people who who are appointed to be preachers, people who, who I even thought that I was going to turn this building over to, people who I had even already handed the key to the church over to, people who I had even been planning to anoint them as pastor of the next pastor who come in here and preach right here, right here behind this same microphone, how the same people think that because they are my brother, they are my friend, that I should not assert my authority. Never ceases to amaze me how they want a country club mentality. But I've got to confess to you, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make enemies. Amen. I'm not here to make friends. I am here to make enemies. Amen. And if you do not understand why I say that, then I encourage you to read the Bible. Jesus said, Think not that I have come to bring peace, but I have come to bring a sword. Amen. I am not a pacifist, and I am not a pacifist preacher. And I'm not here to build a country club. I'm not here to build friendships. I'm not even here to build brotherhood, to be honest with you. Between me and you. I mean, I'd like to be your brother. I want to be your brother. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is this to get lost souls saved, to preach the word of God, to bring repentance to the people, to point people to Jesus Christ, to warn the people of the things to come, to prepare people for death, to prepare people for torture, to prepare people to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, Prepare people for the reality of what they're going to see and to be able to enter into the kingdom. Those, among other things, are why I am here. And to separate you from the enemy, from the world, from Babylon, from false preachers, from lies and deceptions, 
All those things is why I'm here. My least concern, my least of anything, the least of my considerations is friendship. Amen. In fact, part of my duty is to help you get so strong in Jesus Christ, you will not need me once I disappear. Although I would like friends, something I learned when I was in management at McDonald's many years ago. It may sound cruel. It may sound unloving. But it's reality. That when I was in management at McDonald's, and there was many times over the years, people who I fell in love with as friends, people who were my crew members, people who I I hired and fired, who I embraced as family, go over to their houses. One woman even made me godfather over her baby. I really grew in friendship and in love with people who were the crew members. And, but I remember my boss, the man in authority over me, telling me not to be friends with these people because it interferes with the administration. It interferes with the company. It interferes with the job. It interferes with the responsibility. And that is so true. So very, very true. It may sound unloving It may sound cruel, but the reality is the older I get and the more that I experience from people, the greater distance that I keep my heart and my mind and my friendship the better. That doesn't mean that I don't love anyone any less. I can still love people, but I have to refrain from acting as if that I'm not in the position that I'm in. I don't know if you can understand that. I don't know If anybody listening to me can understand that, I don't know. But I know it's the truth. Amen. It doesn't mean that I don't love 
anybody any less. So, for example, going back in the physical example of McDonald's, that I could love this man at McDonald's who was an employee, and I could pray for him and his family, and I could try to teach him right, and I could try to lead him right, and and be his friend and his buddy and his leader and all that, wrapped in one in my mind and in my heart and in my leadership. But as far as, like, moving away from the position of manager and laying that aside, my position of manager, laying it aside and say, oh, it's 5 o'clock now, your shift is over, and now I'm no longer your manager, but now I'm your friend, is not healthy because then that employee at McDonald's says, oh, he's my friend. He won't fire me. He's my friend. He won't correct me. He's my friend. I don't have to obey the commandments. That's what I've seen right here in person. I've seen the same attitude. And therefore, I have to be careful about these things. I'm not trying to exalt myself above anyone, but I have to uh, deal with reality of how I have to deal with people. That my authority, my office remains regardless of whether you think that I'm hateful or harsh or what, I still have to do my job. And if my job calls for correcting people, then I will correct you. If my job calls for me commanding you to do something, I will do so. But I always try not to command. I always try to, uh, always instead, I always try to encourage people. I try to Lead them, not as a false. I don't try to lord over people. But instead, what I do is I try to lead people and encourage people to walk in the spirit of the Lord and to obey the Lord. But sometimes, sometimes I do have to issue commands. I don't want to do that. But sometimes it is necessary. Now look here in verse 34, Matthew 23, verse 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your churches, in your synagogues, now, these synagogues kept the seventh day. They kept all the holy days. They were following the uh, uh, in obedience to the Pharisees, all of this. But it's saying, Jesus is saying to these leaders who were in the seat of Moses that people should have been obeying, he's saying, you're going to kill my prophets, and you have already done this, and you are doing this, and you're going to do this. You're going to kill my ministers. You're going to kill those I have sent. 
murder them and scourge them in the church. So this, what this is saying here is even if somebody is in the church and even if somebody is keeping the seventh day and even if somebody is keeping uh, the commandments, even if somebody is keeping all the holy days, it's still possible that they could come against the servants of God. It's still possible that they could come against Moses. It's still possible that they could come against Elijah. It's still possible that they could come against the two witnesses. People don't understand that when the two witnesses do step up to proclaim their office and their administration, they're going to step up in very bold words. Very, very bold words. And you know what? The church will not believe or embrace the two witnesses. They will not. Not for a while. And even into a great measure of time, a lot of people will still continue to resist them because the two witnesses will be claiming a lot of truth that people don't want to accept. And they will rebuke the two witnesses, people who think they are saved, people who keep the seventh day, people who keep the commandments, people that go into the, into the flock, into the fold, people who are uh, in the ministry, they will speak against the two witnesses. And it's not right. It's not right. Now look here in, in the book of 1 Chronicles. Let's turn over there. In the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles, over there next to Kings and Samuel, book of 1 Chronicles 16. One Chronicles sixteen. Starting in verse fifteen. One Chronicles chapter sixteen, verse fifteen. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Now this ain't the old covenant. This is the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not even talking about the covenant of circumcision, nor the covenant of goats and the blood of goats and animals or the old covenants. This is talking about the covenant, the promise that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless the descendants of that tribes, of those tribes, and of the twelve tribes of Israel, that they should become a great, great multitude in the commonwealth of nations. These are the promises to the United States and the British Commonwealth that we would become a great and leading nation, that America would bless all nations of the world. This is what it's talking about, and that he would always preserve a remnant of us, and that we would always be the leaders. And so then it said here in verse 18, saying, to you I would give the land of Canaan, I would give you the land of the Native Americans, I would give you the land of the African Americans. I would give you the land of the Arabs. I would give you the land of uh, Asia. I would give you the land uh, all across the land, all across the globe. 
the British Commonwealth was the largest empire of all of human history. All of human history. British Empire was the largest. I would give you the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. Verse 19, when they were only a few in number, when it was only Abraham, when it was only Abraham and his family, I gave you this promise. And when you were only a few in number, very few, and strangers in it, strangers in the land, and they wandered about from nation to nation and from kingdom and to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them. And he reproved kings for their sakes. Yes, they had to fight nation after nation. They had to fight. Blood was spilled, war after war, battle after battle. But every time that his people obeyed God and obeyed their leaders, God blessed them. And when they became disobedient, they lost battles and they lost wars. And he reproved kings for their sake, saying in verse 22, do not touch my anointed ones and do, not, and do my prophets no harm. Amen. So God told kings, presidents, leaders, don't you touch my anointed. Amen. He told Pharaoh, he told leaders, other leaders, other kings, presidents of the nations, don't touch my people Israel because they will win. They will win. They will win the battles. They will win the wars. They will win. Amen. Now, we can apply that to the physical nations of Israel, but we can also apply it to the spiritual Israel, my people. We are now a holy nation, a holy priesthood, and do my prophets no harm. That would include Moses and the two witnesses and all the people that are in of the ministry of the truth. I'm not talking about ministers of Babylon. That's not what it's talking about. This is not telling you that you should not touch the ministers of Babylon. That people take the same verse and try to apply it as if it means that you should not correct or rebuke a man of Satan, a Baptist preacher, a Baptist pastor, a Pentecostal, a Catholic priest, uh, as a Pollock preacher, James Owens, they apply it to people like that. We're supposed to be fearing God, but you know what people are doing? Fearing Satan. Because they take scriptures like this and try to apply it to be fearful to rebuke the elder of Satan. And that's not right. These scriptures are not written so that we would not rebuke the elders of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not Jews. 
They say that they are spiritual Israel, but they are not spiritual Israel. They say they are saved, but they are not saved. They say they are the church, but they are not the church. They say they are ministers, but they are not ministers of righteousness and holiness. Do not apply this verse to people who do not keep the seventh day. Do not do it. Amen. The Bible says that we are to reprove and to rebuke false doctrine. Not compromise with it. We are not to look upon a preacher and say, uh, because that he smiles, because that he does not disfellowship, because he does not block people, but, and because he does not rebuke, because he does not offend, because he does not condemn or rebuke or disfellowship or any of these things, that he is more loving. My purpose today is to try to prevent other people from falling for the same trap because it is a trap of the devil. I don't want to see more people fall into the same trap of Babylon. It doesn't mean that you can't love a Baptist preacher or a Pentecostal preacher. It doesn't mean that you can't love a sinner. It doesn't mean that you can't love somebody. It doesn't mean you can't love your parents or your brothers or your sisters. It doesn't mean you can't love these people who are in sin and lawlessness and false doctrine in Babylon. But what it does mean is that we must realize that, that if the people are in Babylon, they are not God's anointed. If they are in Babylon, they are not God's anointed. Yes, God may be using them, but they are not God's anointed. Let's go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The ministers of Babylon are not Moses. The ministers of Babylon are not in Moses' seat. Amen. Hebrews 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on, continue sinning, breaking the law of God, disobeying God, if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if God reveals to you to do something and you don't do it, if God wants you to, to do something and you don't, if God tells you to go somewhere and you don't, if God tells you to say something and you don't, 
or if you know to keep his commandments and you don't, after you received knowledge of what he wants you to do, knowledge of his commandments, knowledge of his will, and you break his will, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. See, the mentality of some people in Babylon is that when you sin, that the blood atonement of Jesus Christ still applies to you even if you don't repent. That's what somebody told me in email a few months ago, that as long as you're saved, you've been saved, and you sin, and you don't profess, you don't profess that sin, and you don't repent of that sin, you're still saved. Because the blood of Jesus still applies to that sin, and you're still atoned. That's not what the Bible says. People take this, this mentality of grace way, way, way too far. Grace only applies about being able to atone for your sins even though you have been guilty. But there is the condition that you must admit that you were wrong. You must admit, you must confess that you have sinned, that you have transgressed, that you have stepped out of line. You have to confess that. And repent of it before that blood is an atonement for you. The blood does not atone for wicked people who refuse to confess their sins. It only atones for people who repent of their sins. Verse 27, but a terrifying expectation, fearful, fear of God, a terrifying, terrifying expectation knowing it's coming of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, who disrespects Moses, disobeys Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much more severe punishment do you think that he will deserve who has trampled under foot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted, insulted the Spirit of grace, meaning the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. This, this does not mean that grace atones for unrepentant, Unconfessed sins does not mean that. Verse 30. You know what this actually means? Jesus just revealed to me right now, this second. Why is the word grace in the context here? Why? And the Spirit just told me. The Spirit of God just told me. It's here because people are saying 
exactly what that person told me in that email. Because of grace, you can continue in sin. That you don't have to repent. You don't have to confess you've been wrong. You can continue in sin because of grace. Therefore, when you say that, you insult, that is insulting to God. And that's insulting to what grace really means. That, oh Lord, thank you, Jesus, for revealing that to us today. This is Jesus revealing his hatred of the doctrine of, of uh, hyper-grace. The doctrine of hyper-grace. That grace covers all sin, even if you don't repent. Hey, if you want grace, if you want forgiveness, if you want atonement for your sins, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to, you have to humble yourself to chastisement, to discipline. The Bible, as we read what ago in uh, uh, Proverbs 9, says, and you should actually even write it in your notes concerning Hebrews 10 here, that in Proverbs 9, if you rebuke a fool, he would turn against you. If you rebuke a mocker, a scoffer, somebody that's uh, uh, thinking that they can't make a mistake just because they've already been anointed, that they won't listen to discipline, that they won't listen to their minister, that they, they will not take the advice of their pastor, they will not examine themselves again and just keep on sinning. Sacrifice of blood no longer applies to them concerning that sin. And it says here in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vintage is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord would judge his people. It is a terrifying, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful. Fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's go into Revelation 18 now. Revelation 18, verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. After these things, I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. This angel had great authority. And the earth was enumerated, lit up with his glory. And it cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And Babylon is a pretty huge and powerful system. It's huge. It's all over the earth. Amen. But it's going to fall when Jesus comes back. On the very day, the context is the very day that Jesus comes back down to the earth. Fallen is Babylon. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of un every unclean and hateful bird, which is a symbol for every type of unclean demon and every type of unclean person. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her immorality, sensuality. Verse 4, I heard another voice 
from heaven, saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, it's too late to come out on the very day that she's destroyed. So what we see in verse 1 to 3 is the actual destruction of Babylon. So what we see in verse 4 is a warning to come out of her before this happens. It's telling us right now that there are people who belong to God who are still trapped in Babylon. They're still going to Sunday churches. They're still listening to Sunday preachers when they should not be doing so. They're still uh, compromising with the lies and deceptions. They're still refusing to rebuke false doctrine. They're still refusing to rebuke false preachers, preachers of Babylon, because they think they're God's anointed when they're not. And they're so willing to compromise and wait and wait and wait and wait and be forbearing with those Babylonian ministers that the very moment that a true minister of God would dare to challenge you, to discipline you, to correct you, then as a snap of a finger, it's back talk, backstabbing, false accusations, rude and obnoxious words and insulting words, without fasting, without praying, without waiting. But they will pray and they will wait before they condemn a false preacher, but they won't wait before condemning a true preacher. Amen? God is my witness. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. And do not participate in her sins and do not receive of her plagues. Let's go down to verse 21. Verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon be thrown into the sea. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a meal will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamb will not shine in you any longer. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, And in her, in Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. You know why? Because Babylon is always willing to stab the true church. Babylon is always willing to hate, to persecute, to stab, to mock, to scoff, to to scorn, to spit in the face of the true prophets of God. Which side do you stand on? Do you stand with the side of Jesus, Moses, and Pastor A.J., and Pastor Tim, and Brittany, and Kiki? Do you stand... Do you stand on our side with Kiki? Do you stand with your sister Kiki? 
Do you stand with your sister Lisa? Do you stand with Pastor AJ? Do you stand with Brittany? Do you stand with me? Do you stand with Moses? Do you stand with the two witnesses? Or do you stand with Babylon? Pick and choose today. Today. Amen. Because I have no patience with Babylon. I have no patience with false preachers anymore. I have no patience with disobedience, lawlessness, sin, transgression against God's law. Amen. Come out of her. Do not partake with her sins or her plagues. Time is short. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. Verse 41. Luke 12, verse 41. Luke 12, verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful? and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that servant, his slave, whom his master finds so doing when he comes, giving the people their rations. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, meaning a drunken lifestyle, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And people say, we cannot know the, the day, the day when Jesus returns. Well, that's true if you don't belong to God. If you are one of these people, then you don't belong to God anymore. You may have at one time belonged to God, but if you're having this attitude of being an alcoholic and abusing people, abusing his anointed, abusing spiritual Israel, abusing your pastors, your brothers, abusing people, then you are not his anymore and you will not know the date of his return. In verse 47, in that slave who knew his master's will, you knew what God wanted you to do and did not get ready, nor did you act in accord with his will of what he told you to do, you will receive many lashes. You will be scourged. You will be whipped. You will be chastised. You will be disciplined. And it will hurt. It will hurt. But don't turn around and smack Jesus. Do not turn around and smack your spiritual fathers. Do not turn around and backbite 
God and his messengers and his prophets. Verse 48. For the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of, of a flogging will receive but few. But everyone who has been given much, much will be required. I would say anybody that's been listening to these sermons, you've been given a whole lot. And to much whom much is given, much is required, not just a little bit. I want you to understand this. If you're listening to these words right now, and especially if you've heard sermons before from this ministry, there's a lot required of you. A lot is required of you. Too much is given, much is required. And to whom that they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Amen. Verse 49. I have come to make friends know. I have come to cast far upon the earth. Not peace, but a sword. I have come to cast far upon the earth. And Jesus said, how I wish that it was already kindled. Already. How I wish that it was done. Amen. Verse 50. But I have a baptism. I have an immersion. To immerse. And how distressed I am until it is done. Until it is accomplished. 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace? On earth. I tell you. No. 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 Jesus did not come. To bring. Pacifism. It says no. But rather. Division. Division. Verse 52. For from now on. Five members in one household. Will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. Brother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Even Moses' own household. You know why? Because nobody is willing to submit themselves. If everybody submitted themselves to God, if the father did, if the son did, if the brother did, if the sister did, if the children did, if the grandparents did, if everybody submitted themselves to God, yeah, yes, we would have peace. But people don't do that. People are rebellious, resistant, proudful, stubborn, and disobedient. And because of that, there must be division and will be division and always will be division until we get to the lake of fire. Amen. There will always be division until we get to the lake of fire, which will destroy all wickedness and every wicked thing and every demon, even Satan himself, will be destroyed in the lake of fire. And only then will there be peace. Only then will there be peace on earth is only after the destruction, the destruction, the chastisement, the destruction, and the punishment 
of the wicked. And people say, that God is not loving because God is willing to kill the wicked. But the truth is, God is that loving. God is that loving, that loving, extremely, extremely pure. Nothing but light and no shadow of darkness in him. He is that loving. God is love for the very reason that he's willing to disfellowship and rebuke and chastise and even destroy wicked, wickedness and wicked people. People don't know what love is. People have no idea what love is. Love will correct people and will rebuke false doctrine. Will disfellowship from people. Even Paul said that he would cast out that one man who was a sinner in the church, cast him out to Satan so that he will be saved in the end. And that that man would even die in the flesh, Paul said. That that man would die lost, but he would be saved in that second resurrection. Paul was willing to disfellowship, but Paul loved that man. Paul loved the church, including that sinner. And that's why he was willing to disfellowship. People think disfellowship is lack of love, but only the opposite is true. The opposite is true. If you love a person enough, you should be willing to disfellowship over sin. When sin is in the house, then disfellowship must occur if they're not willing to repent. Of course, we go to them first and try to get them to repent. But if they don't repent, they must be cast out. If you love them, then they must be cast out. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6. We're getting close to the end here. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6. And we always pray that people will return. Absolutely. We don't stop loving. We don't stop praying when we disfellowship. We want them to come back. Remember in the book of Luke where the man goes out and spends all his family inheritance and you know, his money and he goes astray and lives a life of drunkenness and partying and doing all that. But he came back to his father. He came back to his physical father. He came back to his spiritual father. He came back and he was embraced. We are more than willing to embrace people once they repent, but they have to confess they were wrong. And if they won't humble themselves enough to confess they were wrong, then we will not embrace them back. Because that would not be love to embrace them back unless they repent. We want to see people saved. We're not here to make friends. We're here to make saints. We're not here to make friends. We're here to make saints. And we are in boot camp. And I am a harsh sergeant because that is what is needed in this day and in this time. And in the very same people, very same people 
who say to me, I like the fact that you're harsh, that you're stiff, that you're strong, that you're bold, that you're brave, that you say it the way it is. But when it comes their turn to receive the chastisement, they no longer like it. That's hypocrisy. Amen? You see somebody else getting whipped, you like it. But when it comes your turn to be chastised, then you're more than willing to mock God and disrespect his people. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers like Kenneth Copeland, Joe Olstein, James Owens, Tex Mars, other hypocrites and leaders of Babylon, Steve Quayle, Rick Wiles, many others. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, those that do not keep the seventh day? What fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Baal, or what has the believer in common with the unbeliever, or the faithful with the unfaithful, or what agreement has the temple of God, the church, the people of the pillow of God, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I would dwell in them and walk in them. He is walking in our building, our house, in our church. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Come out from Babylon. Be separate. Be different. Come out from among them, says Jesus, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will only welcome you only if you do this, if you think about it. He's not going to welcome us if we're still walking in the unclean. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, how? In the spirit, in the fear, the spirit, in the fear of God. Amen. Do we perfect holiness without fear? No, it's impossible. Impossible to perfect holiness without fear. It was impossible for me to love my grandmother without fear. If I never felt any fear or reverence of my grandmother, then I did not love her. My love for my grandmother is all wrapped up in fear. (laughs) All wrapped up in fear. But it was a healthy fear. I felt more love by my grandmother than I did my mom. Amen. My grandmother is the only person in my life until my wife, Brittany. Amen that I really, 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 really knew, trusted 100% 
that I was loved. Amen. If we want to perfect holiness, we're going to have fear of God. People don't have fear of God. They really don't. Even when they think they do, when it comes time to be whipped, they no longer fear God. When it comes time to be whipped, they no longer fear God. When it comes time to be beheaded, they would no longer fear God. They would sell their birthright for a bowl of food. When it comes time for the fire of the great tribulation, they would no longer fear God. When it comes time to be chastised or be disciplined by the local pastor, they would no longer fear God. Because their attitude is, who are you? You're just my brother. You're just my friend. I hope that you understand what I'm saying today. And I hope that this will help people from falling in the same pit. Amen. That is my purpose today. My purpose today is not to exhort my authority or magnify my office, but my purpose today is try to help more people to not fall for the same trap that I have seen over and over and over and over and over and over. This, I, I might have to make the same sermon a once-a-month sermon, even if you feel like I'm beating you over the head because I've seen this happen so many times that I'm just kind of at all, I'm at astonishment of how people continue to fall for the same trap. It's like the devil sitting a carrot and, and the rabbit gets caught and he, he falls for the same trap every month. So, anyway, uh, me and my wife were headed out tomorrow go to Pennsylvania and uh, her stepdad who was a Korean War veteran God bless his soul uh, he did pass away Uh, he did go to sleep yesterday and we are headed out tomorrow uh, and I don't know for sure exactly what time we're headed out but uh, it's about supposed to be an eight-and-a-half-hour drive, I think, which will take us 10 or 11 hours because we're old people in the flesh. We're only middle aged, but our bones are old, and we have to get out and stretch and let the car rest and stretch our bones and exercise every so many miles. So it'll take us extra time. And, um, and we'll be gone all week, so we're... Where the, the the weekly chat is canceled. I hate to do that, but I need a little vacation as well. But it's going to be a working vacation. There's no such thing as a complete vacation for um, a true a true pastor, a true minister of God. It's impossible. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot lay down for a whole day and not work. Impossible. But but uh, I do want to counsel, need to counsel that chat this Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. 
uh, try to take a little bit of a vacation while we're out of town, while we're out of state. And, of course, I'll be distributing flyers while I'm all the way on that journey up to Pennsylvania, while I'm there, and on the way back, going the long way around on the way back, hopefully to make an extra stop at Noah's Ark in Kentucky. Uh, in Kentucky, northern Kentucky border, they have a life-size replica of Noah's Ark. Life-size, to scale, the exact dimensions listed in the Bible. And it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, the size just by reading it. And the Bible is hard to imagine. So I'm not 100% sure we're going to do that, but hopefully I think, I think I'm supposed to do that and learn from it and uh, share with you anything I learn and continue to evangelize and distribute flyers through all the different states on the way back as well. Uh, witnessing to people while I'm there, giving out Bibles to people. It's going to be a working vacation. But nevertheless, because of not having a chat and because of not doing the newsletter as much and not watching the news as much and not reading the news as much and not being here to mail out the flyers every day and make crosses every day, not doing all those things and not having the building whooping every day and 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 all those things, it, it will still be a vacation. It will still be less work. And I really, really, really need the time. Uh, but God has told us to go. I usually don't go to funerals. I do not even believe in funerals. I would not even go to my own parents' funeral. You may say think that's harsh and unloving, but that's just the way I am. I do not honor the dead. I do not give the flips. You know, they can't see me. They can't hear me. They can't smell me. They think, you know, you know, it's just in vain. But God told us to go to this one. And so we will obey God. We will go when he tells us to go. Amen. And, and report back to you the lessons. And report back to you what he teaches us. Every time he takes us, every time he takes us on a trip, it blows my mind. The things that he reveals to me every time he tells us to go. So I look forward to sharing with you what he teaches us on this trip. So thank you for your prayers, and we'll, we'll come back to do, do the weekly chat, hopefully the week following, but I can't promise that either because we may be gone for two weeks. I don't know how long we'll be gone. Okay, but we will have services. <laughs> Hell and high water could come. We will still have services. So do not ever, 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 ever wonder whether or not where we're going to have services. I could be in the hospital. We would still have services. I want you to understand that. Do not cancel chats that we are not canceling the seventh day and the commandment of God to have services on the seventh day. Amen. So never doubt that. We may change the time, but never doubt whether or not we're having services. That does not even come into our minds. Amen. Okay, so I appreciate every person.
that is with us today. Love you very much. And uh, God bless all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.